Hello everyone. I wanted to pop in briefly to acknowledge the context in which this episode is being released. We are facing some harsh truths as a country here in the U.S. around the inherent racism that exists in our institutions and systems that allow and perpetuate things like police brutality. Our topic for this week, redlining and how it plays into climate and disaster, is just one more example of that. This episode was recorded almost a month ago now, prior to the most recent bouts of police violence, and so there is no mention of recent events in the episode itself. However, racism, inequity, and blatant prejudice are discussed, so I wanted to provide a bit of a content warning up front in case you're not quite up to listening to something like this at the moment. Alex and I both hope that everyone is staying safe and healthy out there, and thank you to everyone on the front lines fighting to make this country live up to its own ideals. I hope you enjoy the episode. Redlining. What a strange term, evoking an antiquated way of thinking. Or, on the other hand, evoking nothing, because you have no idea what it is. For those of you who have heard it, It's all in the past, right? We don't do that anymore. Or do we? And for those of you who don't know what it is, guess what? I'm about to tell ya. But what the heck does redlining have to do with disaster and climate anyway? Well, that's what we're getting into this week on Globally Heated. Hello to everyone out there just trying to exist. I'm Sam. Of course you tried to speak in iambic pentameter. Why does that not surprise me at all? And I'm Alex. (laughs) Why is your guys' podcast so expensive to produce? Well, we had to spend $1,000 developing a program specifically to edit out Sam's silent, choking laughter. (laughs) (laughs) And And this this is Globally Heated. Our little blue globe is going through some changes, and there's so much going on. It could be hard to get past all the headlines, hyperbole, which is also pronounced hyperbole, and sound bites, and into the nuances, the gritty complex facts, and the really important yet often overlooked crunchy nougat centers of disaster, climate, social issues, and everything in between, and around, and behind. So join us each week as we travel with you down the rabbit hole to investigate the intersections of disaster and climate with our everyday lives and what we can all do with this crazy, hectic, rapidly heating world of ours. Welcome to episode six of Globally Heated. This week, it's just me, myself, and I for a short episode on redlining and disaster. Alex will be back next week, not to worry, and I'll do my best to entertain you until then. So, let's get started. First things first, what the heck is redlining? Well, to quote an NPR article that I've linked in the description, redlining refers to the federal government's practice in the 1930s of raiding neighborhoods to help mortgage lenders determine which areas of a city were considered risky. The Federal Homeowners Loan Corporation made maps and shaded neighborhoods red that it deemed hazardous. 
that risk level was largely based on the number of African Americans and immigrants living there. We can use the infographic I made this week, linked in the show notes, to illustrate this description a little better. Say you have a garden. Yes, we'll pretend you have a green thumb, even if you don't, just for the purposes of this episode. Now, you made this garden. It doesn't exist naturally. It's only there because you put those plants there and mandated that that is where they grow. Obviously, this is a tiny bit different than housing in cities, but not that different. Housing prices, real estate and zoning practices, land use regulations, and etc. dictate where certain groups of people can live. And historical racism and discrimination, along with contemporary racism and discrimination, have done a bang-up job of segregating neighborhoods for decades now. So you have your garden, and you have divided it up into four sections. Now, imagine you either like the plants in these other three sections more, or you like the ones in that one other section less, or you just don't really care much about the plants in that one section because you think they're lazy plants, or they use too much community water, or they were scraggly when you got them, so why put in the extra effort if they just don't really have any motivation to grow? Well, you give that one section less time, resources, and attention but you fertilize and water those other three sections regularly, as often as they need, or just about, while that one section just kind of gets water whenever you feel like it, which is way less often than they actually need, because you think they're just too demanding and shouldn't need so much water anyway, and they pretty much never get fertilizer unless your mom calls you out for how sad that one part of your garden looks. And you already made sure those three sections you like are in relatively good areas, so they get around the right amount of sun, while that one section never gets any shade and just burns in the hot, hot summer sun with no relief. You made the choice to not invest in that one section of your garden. What do you think is going to happen? Well, as someone who enjoys gardening but is mediocre at it at best, I can tell you with a fair amount of certainty that the plants in that one section are probably gonna die. If they don't, because they're tough cookies with an intense will to live, they certainly aren't going to produce the flowers or vegetable that you want them to. They simply don't have the resources. Many of them will face higher rates of plant heart attacks, plant diabetes, and other plant health problems. Uh, Maybe fungus. Others will be more susceptible to violent crime, and some may join gangs of weeds for acceptance, protection, or what they see as their only future. And this shunned garden environment will be ripe, not with delicious veggies, but with opportunity for exploitation and continued marginalization by the surrounding plants. This will perpetuate further plant stereotypes, which will be used by many plants to scapegoat other issues with your garden. Is this metaphor clear enough? You have redlined your garden, designated an area as not worthy of resources for one reason or another. Redlining neighborhoods is a little more complicated than that, and a lot more related to capitalism, racism, and all-around crappy people making craptastic decisions without giving a rat's behind about the consequences for others. But the principle stands. Redlined neighborhoods experienced disinvestment and a distinct lack of resources, even when it came to basic utilities and resources that should have been provided by the government, like local infrastructure. But that was the 1930s, right? I mean, mortgage lenders don't have neighborhoods colored red on maps in their offices anymore. Do they? Yes and no. 
Redlining doesn't look exactly the same as it did in the 1930s. Thankfully, anti-discrimination laws and other rules and policies have made such blatant racism and prejudice harder. But that doesn't mean it doesn't exist anymore. A report from the Center for Investigative Reporting in 2016, which was discussed in a podcast episode of Reveal that I will link in the description and show notes because it was fantastic, showed that banking and lending practices from where banks and ATMs are located to who qualifies for a mortgage continue to be discriminatory today making it extremely difficult for people of color, but especially Black Americans, to build wealth by buying a home through access to a mortgage. On top of that, we're still seeing effects of that 1930s discrimination to this day in communities across the country. Though some redline neighborhoods have been gentrified, largely pushing out minority residents and at times increasing green space, Many of them have remained segregated, continue to face disinvestment, and largely consist of industrial and hazardous areas not allowed in other residential spaces. So what does all of this have to do with disasters and climate change? If you read our posts on income inequality and disaster preparedness, you may remember that poverty is a cycle and that resilience to disaster has a lot to do with socioeconomic status and disposable income. Because of historical redlining and current lending discrimination, minority families, particularly black families, have had many fewer opportunities to build the wealth necessary to build resiliency, making them less able to prepare, respond, and recover in the event of a disaster or emergency. But let's go back to our garden analogy. If that one neglected, discriminated against section of your garden suddenly experienced an intense deluge, A huge rainstorm with high winds dropping massive amounts of water. How do you think it would fare? I'll tell you, it wouldn't do so well. Hint, for you non-gardeners out there, malnourished plants have shallower root systems, which means a less resilient support system and can often experience other health issues that make them weaker or less resilient to extremes. The other three sections of your garden have grown nicely. The plants in them have a lot of leaves and robust root systems. You provided them with trellises to keep them upright. Their roots are beneficially entangled with their neighbors, creating a support system. They're healthy, they can endure difficulty because they have an excess of nutrients and energy. The plants in those other three sections will probably survive. They might sustain some damage, lose some leaves or a branch or two, but they will probably be okay especially because your concern for them will mean you are checking up on them, doing at least something to help them get through the storm. The plants in that one neglected section, on the other hand, they are much less likely to make it through. Poor nutrition has meant poor growth. They have few leaves and weak, sparse root systems. Some of the plants are sick, and they struggle to support themselves, let alone each other. There are no trellises to help hold them up. In a heavy rainstorm, raindrops erode soil that isn't covered, which can expose roots and uproot plants entirely if they have a shallow root system. Winds will topple unsupported plants over, potentially ripping them from the ground or taking off whatever leaves they may have left. And we've already seen you aren't willing to invest time or energy into these plants at any other time, so it's highly unlikely you're going to try to support them through this particular storm. It's an extreme example and not a one-to-one comparison, but it is an easy, simple way to illustrate the principle of how redlining can make communities vulnerable in the face of disaster and climate change. 
Historically, redlined neighborhoods have been shown to have significantly higher levels of air pollution, leading to increased health issues and even death. Combine these health effects with those created by the increased chronic stress levels, decreased access to nutritional foods, and decreased access to potable water and other utilities associated with low socioeconomic status. And it's easy to see how health could serve as a barrier to resiliency in redlined neighborhoods as well. On top of all that, recent studies have found that the industrial character of historically redlined neighborhoods, as well as a dearth of green space in those areas, have led to increased vulnerability to extreme heat in these communities. Some of the neighborhoods studied were found to be upwards of 13 degrees hotter than nearby non-redlined neighborhoods. Fewer trees, less shade, and decreased access to tools such as air conditioning that could be used to beat the heat mean that residents of low-income, historically redlined neighborhoods are at much higher risk during extreme heat emergencies, and these types of emergencies have been increasing in recent years. This also applies to cold weather emergencies and snowstorms for you folks of a more northern persuasion. It can be easy to discount this experience when you go from your well-air-conditioned house into your well-air-conditioned car and end up in your well-air-conditioned office. But those using the bus in a neighborhood where there are no bus shelters and working outside who can't afford air conditioning or adequate heating in their homes aren't so lucky to escape the effects of extreme temperatures. But the gardener in my metaphor is different from all of you listening in a very critical respect. Unlike said gardener, you don't want this neglect and discrimination to continue. So how can we fix our garden? Well, we can start with understanding and then take action. This vulnerability does not exist by accident. Cities have been planned, designed, and built by humans. Kind of like that garden we talked about. And so have the problems that exist within them. We can plan, design, and build our way out of them, too, if only we have the motivation and desire to do so. We need to vote, raise the issue, and raise awareness in our communities, help others be more prepared for disasters, and be good allies and advocates for redline communities. Okay, my friends, here is where we get into what we have nerdily yet lovingly named the Cool It Toolkit. Just cool it. Every episode, we'll spend a few brief yet wondrous moments discussing what the heck you and everybody else can do about this nutball world of ours and what's happening in it. You can find all the resources and links we mention here through the Cool It Toolkit page on our website. And feel free to reach out if there is something you want to see that isn't there. This week, we discussed redlining and how discriminatory lending practices have led to decreased wealth and increased vulnerability to disasters and emergencies, particularly among black and minority communities in the United States. Our biggest piece of advice this week is do your research. If you work at a bank, mortgage lender, or for state or local government, look into your policies and practices and figure out if there are any discrepancies in how you lend or to whom. If you work or volunteer in community or city beautification and environmental projects, find out if there is a neighborhood or community that has experienced disinvestment or discrimination near you, and consider working with community members and neighbors there to provide resources and increased green space to decrease heat-related dangers in the area. If you're just a concerned citizen wanting to make a difference, do some research on your bank and lending institution. Do they have a history of discriminatory lending or banking practices? If they do, voice your concerns. 
If they don't respond well, consider changing institutions if that is within your financial capacity. If your banking or lending institution doesn't have a history of discriminatory practices, let them know you noticed and that they should keep doing what they're doing. Well, the world is hotter, but hopefully we've all got a little more context for what's happening on it. That's all we've got for you guys this week. Thanks so much for listening to all of our shenanigans, especially Alex's shenanigans. And uh, please subscribe if you want to hear more from us on a weekly basis. Feel free to leave us a review on any and all of your podcast apps. Also, give us five-star reviews. There's no other type of review. It's not, it's not even an option. Don't try it. Don't even click on the stars to the left of the fifth one. Yep, no, five is the only option. Oh, yeah. Also, check out our website, globallyheated.com. Dot com. Don't go to .net. It's, it's a weird site. It's terrifying. .com is the one you want. You can find podcast notes and follow along on our blog to hear about some uh, thoughts and maybe a few crazy adventures in disasterdom. And also find lots of cool infographics and uh, some helpful cartoons for your own visual edification. And be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Globally Heated for updates on the podcast and blog. The music in our episodes is by Kevin McLeod. Until next time, stay cool, folks. Stay safe out there.